We read sacred scripture tonight from Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. We'll read the first 11 verses of Philippians 3, and the text for the sermon is verses 4 through 9. Because of the length of that section, I won't reread that. text is verses 4 through 9. We'll read the first 11 verses of chapter 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision, which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcise the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. We read the word of God that far again. The text is found there in verses 4 through 9. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the book of Philippians is a beautiful book that has a great deal of practical instruction for how we are to live the Christian life in the midst of this world. When we look at the book of Philippians, the focus is not ultimately on us and on the life that we're called to live in this world, but the focus is on Jesus Christ. You turn back to Philippians chapter 1, in verse 21, we read, Therefore to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. As the apostle looks at the whole of life, this is the summary. To truly live is Christ. The Christian life is all about Jesus Christ. And death is gain Because, as he goes on to say, when we die as Christians, we go to be with Christ, which is 
far better so that the focus in death is Christ and the focus in life is Christ. Same thing is true in Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, there's a very practical exhortation that's set forth there. That's the call to unity in the church in the way of humility. But that important practical instruction for life in the church is grounded in profound statements about Jesus Christ and his humility. Verse 6, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. Verse 8, humbled himself, became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. This very practical instruction is grounded in profound truth about who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. Now again, here in Philippians chapter 3, the focus is on Jesus Christ. This beautiful gospel statement that the apostle says, I count all things as loss, all these earthly advantages, for the sake of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ and salvation in Christ alone. Focus is Christ Christ, Christ. This beautiful gospel statement that is the text for the sermon tonight flows out of what the apostle had said in the opening three verses of this chapter. In those opening verses, the apostle warns against dogs, evil workers, and the concision or the mutilation Briefly to summarize that, what he's referring to there are not three different things that they have to be on guard against, but one false teaching, which was the false teaching of the Judaizers. These were Jews who claimed to be Christians and confessed outwardly faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. And yet, what they wanted to do was to bring Christians back under the bondage of the Old Testament law. Specifically, they wanted to take Gentile converts and to bring them again under the Old Testament requirement of circumcision. And what their false teaching amounted to was salvation, supposedly by grace and by the works of the law. And the apostle says to the church, beware of this, be on your guard against this. And to press home that warning, he then proceeds in our text to use himself as an example. He says, if there was anyone who could boast in these outward things or attempt to ground their salvation in what they had accomplished, I am exhibit A. No one has better credentials than I do. And there was a time in my life where I counted all of these external things as gain to me, as if I had done something for my salvation. He says, I can tell you from my own life, I've been down that road, and it leads nowhere but to destruction. It's utter folly. 
I've come to see that all of these things, if they're the basis for salvation, are but lost, they're dung, because the only gain is to be found in Jesus Christ. passage then summarizes beautifully the truth of our salvation. We are not saved because of who we are, because of some earthly status that we have. We're not saved on account of any of our own supposed achievements that we can present before God. There's not some part of our salvation that ultimately depends upon us and who we are and what we've done to earn that. Our salvation is a wonder of God's grace. It's found alone in the working of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's consider this Word of God tonight, taking as the theme, gains counted as loss. First, let's notice the, the reckoning, that idea that these things that were gains really are loss. And secondly, the reason for that. And then finally, what is the, the end in all of this? The apostle begins using himself as an example to warn the saints in Philippi by saying that if there's anyone who could trust in the flesh, it would be him. He says in the first part of verse 4, though I might also have confidence in the flesh. In fact, as he goes on to say, you could take all of my credentials and line them up over against the best of the Judaizers, those who are trusting in the flesh for their salvation. And when you compare these two things, I'm going to come out on top. The rest of verse 4, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. If we're going to compare outward credentials, I'm going to win, the apostle says. And speaking, of course, very hypothetically and foolishly. From there then, he goes on to explain four things that relate to his status, things that were a matter of his coming into this world, his birth, that at one time he trusted in as his gain before God. First of all, in verse 5, he says, circumcised the eighth day. He begins with that because that was the crucial point with the false teachers. The Judaizers put all of their pride in being circumcised, that this was necessary for them in their salvation. Paul says, if that's how you want to evaluate things, then I can boast in that too. Because I was circumcised. I received that Old Testament sign of the covenant and the covenant people. In fact, he says, essentially, I'm an eighth dayer. I'm circumcised as an eighth dayer. There may be others whose parents were more lax and perhaps had them circumcised on the ninth day or the tenth day. They weren't so concerned to have it on the, the eighth day. Or there were other Gentile converts who only later in their life submitted to circumcision. But he says, that, that wasn't true of me. 
precisely as the law demanded on the eighth day, I was circumcised. That first, then secondly, he says in verse 5, of the stock of Israel. He can trace his lineage going back generation after generation to Israel, Jacob, and therefore to the other patriarchs, Isaac and Abraham. For generations, the family of Paul had belonged outwardly to the people of God. There were others at this time whose lineage had been diluted, they might say. Perhaps there was a Jewish woman who had married a a Gentile husband. That was the case, for example, with Timothy. And there had been a diluting of that, some might say, because this Jewish woman had married a Gentile husband. But not so, Paul says with him, he's of the stock of of Israel. Third, he says in verse 5 of the tribe of Benjamin, Benjamin was a fairly prominent tribe. Benjamin was the last, the youngest son of Jacob through the beloved wife, Rachel. He was the only one who was born in the promised land. Benjamin was the tribe to produce the very first king of Israel, Saul, the man from whom Paul received his name. And Benjamin was the only tribe that remained faithful to Judah and to the house of David in the great schism that took place between the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes. The reason why Paul mentions this is to further establish his credentials as an Israelite. At this time, the tribal divisions had largely fallen away. Paul says, my family can still hold to the fact that we belong to the tribe of Benjamin. Our credentials are are impeccable. And then fourth, and really as a summary of all that he said so far, verse 5 in Hebrew, of the Hebrews. If there's anyone who's a blue-blooded Jew, a dyed-in-the-wool Hebrew, he says, it's me. This was a day and an age in which so many of the Jews had come under the influence of the, the pagan Greek culture around them and had given up much of their heritage. But Paul says, that, that's not true of me, that's not true of my family. We are Hebrews of the Hebrews. He mentions those four things first as a matter of his status, a matter of his his birth, that if he were to trust in the flesh, he'd have all these things that he could put his confidence in. After that, he mentions three things that are a matter, perhaps, of his outward achievement. He says at the end of verse 5, as a matter of his own supposed achievement, as touching the law of Pharisee. Paul says elsewhere in Acts 26 verse 5, in his speech as he stands on trial before King Agrippa, 
Referring to the Jews, he says, which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. There were Jews, and then there were Pharisees. There were common, ordinary Jews, and then there was the strictest sect of the Jews, the Pharisees. They would have been referred to as the ultra-conservatives, as the 200 percenters. There were others who were not as committed to keeping the law of God, who were not as faithful in how they lived. And then there were the, the Pharisees who strictly kept all of the laws, in fact, had added all kinds of traditions of men in addition to the law as a supposed attempt to to safeguard the law and the keeping of the law. Paul says, this is who I was. This is how I lived. I was a Pharisee like no other, faithful in keeping the law. Then second, as a matter of his own supposed achievement, he says in verse 6, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. His famous teacher, Gamaliel, had cautioned a certain level of patience with the Christians. If it's from God, even if we oppose them, they'll continue to succeed. If it's not from God, it'll fall apart on its own. He cautioned patience, temperance. But not so his pupil Paul. Paul was more zealous than any other to stamp out this Christian religion. He was going to defend the religion and the faith of his fathers. He was going to protect the the law and circumcision and the way of the Pharisees so that he became a persecutor of the church. No one was more zealous in hunting down Christians and hauling them away to prison, testifying against them in court so that he approved of their being put to death, doing all he could to get them to blaspheme the name of God by rejecting Christ. No one was more zealous than Paul. And then third and last, As a matter of his own supposed achievement, he says at the end of verse 6, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul's point there is not to say that I am or I was perfect and without sin. But the point is to say that in my outward life and outward behavior, no one could lay a charge against me. I kept all of the requirements of the sacrifices at the temple, all of the purification laws of the Old Testament. I was zealous to observe them. I was faithful in observing all of the Sabbath days and all of the the feast days. I kept the law blameless. There was a time in Paul's life where in evaluating all of, all of these things, his status, his achievements, he would have said, these things are all gain to me. With respect to my salvation, I can ground my salvation in them. I have standing with God because of all of these things of who I am and what I've done. He says at the beginning of verse 7, but what things were gain to me, 
There are many things in our lives as Christians that we might also be tempted to boast in. There are many things regarding status, regarding our own supposed achievements, that we might be tempted to to put our confidence in for our salvation and our standing before God. We know theology well enough to say we reject salvation by works. We know that our salvation is is not grounded on anything in us and we know enough to, to reject that. And yet, in reality, there is always this temptation for us truly in our hearts to believe that our standing before God is based on what we are or what we've done. There may be things that relate to our status, our, our birth. Many of us were born to believing parents, grew up in a believing home, could trace our ancestry perhaps many generations to our grandparents and great-grandparents and, and as far back as we're able even to, to sort out belonging to the church and perhaps even to reformed churches. We had years of catechism instruction. Some of us had the privilege of attending a, a Christian school and a Christian high school and receiving that instruction. Perhaps we know we were baptized by Reverend so-and-so. We received that New Testament sign of the covenant. All of these matters that relate to our birth, our status. And then there are things in our life that one might classify as our supposed achievements. When we evaluate our life, and we compare that to others, we think we're, we're doing pretty well. We come out ahead. We're not as unfaithful as others might be. And we're more faithful in observing the law of God in our life. Others, for example, might be lax with regard to the Sabbath day, and yet we are faithful in our observance of the Sabbath. Some might take their boast in their being conservative. There are others out there who are are liberal, who aren't as faithfully maintaining the Word of God, but I am. I'm a a conservative, a 200 percenter. And though we know in our head salvation is not by working in reality, in our heart, we're tempted to count all of these things as gain. That is, to, to ground our standing with God on these things. To base our hope for the future on who I am and, and what I have and how long I've belonged to the church of Jesus Christ and all of these external things that, I, that I've done in my life.
Where is our trust ultimately? Is our trust for salvation in something we've received in our birth, in our status, in how we've grown up? Is our trust ultimately in who we are and what we've done and how we're, we're better than others? The Apostle says, I count all of those things as loss. As he reckons all of these things and takes stock of all of them, he says, if, if my salvation depends upon my status or my achievements, then there is only loss. He mentions that word loss three times. Verse 7, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Verse 8, Yea, doubtless and I all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge Christ Jesus my Lord and then again for a third time for whom I have suffered the loss of all things he's using a financial an accounting word there these things he says that I thought were assets to me with respect to my salvation I've come now to see they're liabilities what I thought were deposits into my account with God in reality are debits. Not gain, but loss. And then he goes even further, says at the end of verse 8, and do count them but dung. There are some who explain that word to be referring to any kind of garbage or trash that's thrown out into the streets for the wild dogs to scavenge from. And there is a sense in which that's fitting because if you look back at verse 2, the apostle says, beware of dogs. And he's referring to these false teachers who would bring God's people back under the bondage of, of the law and this idea of being saved by their keeping of the law. But the word means exactly how it's translated here. It's not only filthy street garbage, it's dung, it's excrement, it's manure. These things, these earthly things, Paul says, if these things have to be the foundation and ground of my salvation, it's all loss, it's it's not only that, it's dung, and this is how I, I reckon these things. This is how I view these things now. As loss, as dung. As what's filthy, what's disgusting, what turns my stomach and which, what makes me pinch my nose in, in disgust. This is the only proper reckoning and accounting of those things. Think of it in these terms. Picture a man that works week after week for his living. Every week at the end of the week when he receives his paycheck, he goes directly to the bank and he thinks he's depositing that in a savings account. 
doesn't look at a, a statement ever, just drops off the check and assumes that week after week it's going into this savings account so that there's something being accumulated every week. There's gain for him. And this goes on for, for months, for years. And then finally down the road, he views a statement from the bank. And all of those things were not gains to him, they're losses. What he thought he was depositing was actually being debited out of his account. What he thought were assets for him were in actually, actuality liabilities for him. He's not way ahead now with this nice nest egg stored up, but in reality he's so deeply indebted. That's the truth of what the Word of God is describing here. If we think we're, we're laying up all of these gains in our account before God, this is my status, I was baptized by so-and-so, and I belonged all my life to this church, and I've done all of these things. The reality is, it can only be counted as loss. And more than that, it's dung, it's filth, it's, it's excrement, it's what turns our stomach and makes us pinch our nose in disgust. These things cannot save. We're not saved on account of our status, we're not saved on account of these things we've supposedly done. Only proper reckoning of them is that those supposed gains are loss. Why is that? What's the reason for that? That we account all these supposed gains as loss. And the reason is that the Apostle Paul indicates what is the only true gain, and that's to belong to Jesus Christ, and to know that salvation is found alone in Him. Paul says in verse 7, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Paul is describing there his conversion. He's on the road to Damascus as a zealous persecutor of the church. He's got all of these supposed gains in his account with God. Now Christ lays a hold of him on the road to Damascus. And now Paul's eyes are open and what he comes to see is all of these gains in reality are loss on account of Jesus Christ and belonging to him. And then he goes on in verse 8 and says, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. And there he's shifting tenses to the present tense. He says, this is what happened when I was converted. I came to see this is what the reality is. And he's saying, and this is how I continue to, to reckon all these things. I continue to view all of these things as loss. For the sake of Jesus Christ. Paul's point here is not that he went on some quest to, to find gain in Jesus Christ. He was living his life, putting his stock in all of these earthly things, and Christ took a hold of him. And now having 
gained Christ, and knowing what that is to belong to Jesus Christ, he can evaluate his life and see those things are, are loss. The only real gain is to belong to Jesus Christ. And his point is, this is how I continue to live my life. I'm not going back under that bondage of, of thinking my salvation is grounded in these things. Continue to live trusting alone in Jesus Christ for my salvation. That leads into then a description of the truth of our salvation in verse 9. Some commentators have described that verse and its description of our righteousness with God as a meteorite from the book of Romans that's landed here in the book of Philippians. The book of Romans, you remember chapter after chapter setting forth the heart of the gospel and our justification by faith alone. A nugget of that beautiful truth, as it were, is broken off from Romans and landed here in the book of Philippians. It's describing our righteousness, our right standing with God. How is it that we have standing with God? What is our righteousness before Him? Verse 9 says, to be found in him not having mine own righteousness which is of the law. The righteousness of the law is righteousness by one's keeping of the law. In one's keeping of the law, there is no righteousness before God. What the law does is the law condemns. It condemns all of our attempts to merit righteousness with God by our own working because the law lays before us the strict demand of perfection. This is the unswerving requirement of the law of God. Live perfectly. Love God with all that you are. Love the neighbor as yourself at all times. And what the law exposes then is that we are bankrupt in ourself, that we have no righteousness of ourself to present before God. We need the righteousness of another. What the reformers called an alien righteousness. The righteousness that we need is the righteousness of God that comes from God Himself. That's the last part of Verse 9, the righteousness which is of God by faith. That righteousness that we need, that we do not have in ourselves, is found alone in God. God is the one who bestows that and imputes that to us, which is the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. How is it that we have right standing with God? It's only in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, His perfect keeping of the law all of His life long and His atoning death for our sins at the cross. By faith, we rest in and 
receive Christ and his righteousness. That's verse 9 as well in the middle. But that which is through the faith of Christ. Faith is the sole means or instrument whereby we receive and we are confident of this right standing with God. Our works are not that means or instrument. It's faith alone. And faith is that fitting means of our justification because the very nature of faith is such that it always looks away from self. Doesn't trust in self. It doesn't trust in one's own working. It doesn't trust in the depth of one's sorrow over sin. It doesn't trust even in our own believing. Faith looks away from self and faith rests in and trusts in Jesus Christ alone. That's what the text is referring to when it speaks of the faith of Christ. The point there is not that this faith belongs to Christ, that it's Christ's faith. It's not biblical or reformed to speak of Christ believing on our behalf or in our place. That word of is referring to the object of our faith. It's answering the question, in whom do we rest and trust and believe? And the object of faith is Jesus Christ. Faith rests, faith trusts in Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ alone our righteousness before God. Our salvation, therefore, is not a matter of who we are and these external privileges that we enjoy. It's not a matter of our own supposed achievement. We're saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. For that reason, that we can count all of these earthly, external advantages as loss. Many of those things are good gifts from God. To have believing parents and grandparents, to grow up in a Christian home, to receive good catechism instruction, to receive good instruction in a Christian school. These are good gifts from God. And the point of the apostle here is not to say that we reject all of those things, that none of those things are things we're to be thankful for. The point of the apostle is to say, if we're going to base salvation in something, It may not be in those things. Then we account all of those things as as a loss, as the, the foundation of salvation, as the ground on which we build our hope for the future. Salvation is not grace plus something else. It's not grace plus the status I've received in my birth. It's not grace plus all of these achievements that I can present before God. It's not Christ and me. It's not Christ's work plus my working. When it's grace plus 
then we lose grace. The only way to stand before God is stripped entirely bare. To be stripped of all of our outward status, all of our supposed achievements, to stand with hands empty. Only when we stand before God, totally stripped bare of any trust or dependence on self or anything in self that we're robed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's standing before God with hands empty that we're filled with Christ and His righteousness. This is the great gain to be found in Christ. Belonging to Jesus Christ, knowing salvation in Him alone, trusting in Him for all of our salvation, we know real gain. The blessings of salvation in Jesus Christ. And knowing that, then we're ready to to give up all if that's required of us. Paul says in verse 8, For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, if it's some way required of me to give up something of self for the sake of the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ alone, then I'm, I'm ready to lose all of those things. To lose my earthly status, to be stripped of all of my supposed achievements because there's nothing that can compare to belonging to Jesus Christ. He is our all in all. There is no salvation. There is no standing with God that's based on us or any of these earthly earthly things. Our trust is to be alone and the crucified, and risen Savior, Jesus Christ. What's the end of all of this? And according to the Word of God here is that we know Christ. In verse 8, The Apostle indicates that, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. That word excellency refers to what is great, what is surpassing. The Apostle uses that same word later in Philippians 4, verse 7, and the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The same word there, passes all understanding. This peace that is surpassing. The same thing is true of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. This knowledge is excellent. It's great. It it surpasses everything else. The apostle returns to that idea in verse 10. 
It's not part of our text, but it's connected and it follows after that. Where in verse 10 he says, that I may know him. The knowledge that the Word of God speaks of here is not merely head knowledge, although it includes that. This knowledge includes that we know certain things about Jesus Christ, about who He is, and about what He's done. But this knowledge is not merely head knowledge. It goes way beyond that. This is the knowledge of the heart. This is the knowledge of faith. This is the knowledge of love. It's the difference between knowing about Jesus Christ and knowing Christ. Apostle Paul was a man consumed with Christ. In the beginning of the sermon tonight, we looked at chapter 1, where the apostle looks at life and he says, to me to live is Christ and death. That's gain. Why? Because I go to be with Christ. It's Christ in life. It's Christ in death. Chapter 2, he's telling the congregation, be united, be humble. And that's grounded in who Jesus Christ is. He who is God thought it not something to be grasped, to be equal with God for himself, but made himself of no reputation, came in the form of a, of a servant, was obedient to the death of the cross. It's about Christ. And the same thing is here in chapter 3. I count all of these earthly things as loss, as dung, as, as filth. Because the greatest thing is to know Christ. Is there anything that can compare to knowing Christ. This is the excellent, the surpassing knowledge. There is nothing, nothing in all of the world, nothing that this world and this earth has to offer that can compare to knowing Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is known as the only, the complete Savior. We do not know Jesus Christ, not truly, if we still are putting some stock in our status in an earthly way or something that we've done for our salvation. Then we can talk about knowing Jesus Christ, but we do not truly, deeply know Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is truly known as the only and the complete Savior. The only one in whom our trust rests. The only one in whom we rest for all of our salvation. Resting in Jesus Christ by faith. We know Him. We know Him in the intimacy of 
His fellowship. We know Him in the intimacy of, of love and of faith. And there's nothing, nothing at all that can compare to that. This is the great end and the great joy of our salvation. It's not only that we're forgiven, we're right with God and Jesus Christ, that we enjoy all of these blessings, those are important to us. But in the end, the focus is not on the blessings. It's the one in whom we receive these blessings. The end and the focus of all of our salvation, both now and forever in heaven, is Jesus Christ. Therefore, beware. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision, the mutilation, beware of any false teaching that would lead you astray and bring you again under the bondage of of the law and salvation by your own status or your own working. Beware in your own heart of that sinful pride of resting And depending upon yourself, your background, your family, your own supposed achievements. You know Christ. You know Him as the only and the complete Savior. Trust in Him alone. Amen. Let us pray. Father who art in heaven, we thank Thee for the gospel. We thank Thee for the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. And we thank Thee for the gift of faith whereby we believe in, rest in, trust in Lord Jesus Christ, our righteousness. Father, strengthen our faith. Help thou our unbelief. We confess that we are prone yet by nature to trust in ourselves, to trust in earthly things and earthly achievement. Deliver us. Give us rightly to account all of these things as loss for the sake of Christ. Strengthen and deepen our knowledge of Him. Grant us, Heavenly Father, to live as men and women who are gripped by the Gospel, whose focus is on Christ in both living and in dying. Hear us in mercy for His sake. Amen. Sing Psalter number 362, 362. Let's sing all the stanzas, all three.
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide with you all. Amen. Amen.